If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. The Second Chance Podcast, available on all podcast platforms and our dedicated YouTube channel, centers around the question of who deserves a second chance who has the power to grant it and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel were undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. This special episode, in collaboration with the Crime and Investigation Play app, features Stephen Mee, a notorious drug smuggler turned celebrated artist. By using the exclusive code Second Chance, you can get a 50% discount on a subscription to the Crime and Investigation Play app. This way you can stream this special episode of Second Chance, my documentary series British Injustice and other true crime content available on the channel. To take advantage of the offer, go to crimeandinvestigationplay.co.uk and enter the code second chance when prompted. The offer is valid until March 31st, 2024, so don't delay. Get yourself 50% off a new streaming platform. For terms and conditions and more information, go to the description. The fascinating life of former drug lord Stephen Mee really is what dramatized crime movies try to replicate. Originally from northern Manchester, here in the UK, Stephen faced many challenges throughout his upbringing, including personal loss and family struggles. 
despite discovering his artistic talent early on, he also became involved in a life of crime. It all came to a dramatic end in 1996 when he was given 30 years for importing Class A drugs from the Colombian Cali cartel. His stories about his involvement in the trafficking of millions of pounds and hundreds of kilos of cocaine with Turkish, Albanian and Colombian crime groups beggars belief. Stephen ended up serving 16 and a half years in prison. It was whilst he was in prison that he developed his skill as an artist and his passion for fine arts, leading to a transformative experience. He has now established himself as a professional artist, drawing inspiration from both his past and present experiences. Thanks for coming in, Steve. My pleasure. Journey down from Liverpool. Yep. Just setting the record straight, because most people... <laughs> journey down from Manchester. Yeah. Because most people think that you come from Liverpool, but you're a Mancunian. I'm a Mancunian, born and bred, yeah. So the reports at the very beginning are always wrong. Yeah, the, the, the reports uh, of the Liverpool side came from the police, really. They said I was from Liverpool because it was, uh, I think the only knowledge that they had of me at the time was that we're speaking back slang, so they thought it was Liverpool. I, I've, I've read a few things before yeah. meeting you, um, and the headlines have described Steve Mee as notorious international drug smuggler, gangster, um, you, you know, one of the very few to have direct contact with the Carly cartel, the Colombians, um, lots of stories that mm. depict you as one of the UK's most notorious drug smugglers. Um, there's also stories that describe you as an artist, something yeah. that you've been doing since you were a very young boy. Um, how true are those accounts first, and how would you describe yourself? The, the gangster side of it you can take out because it was never that for, for, for me and the people I work with. Uh, I think we came before the, the, the modern type of gangsters came. Ours was built mostly on trust, so all that side of it is uh, just propaganda, I suppose. Uh, I just see myself as an international businessman at the time, moving quantities of a product from one country to another. That's how you saw it. That's how I saw it. Yeah, I know. I know it wasn't that. You know, I was dealing in death and all the things. But while you're dealing with it, or while you're doing it, you're not thinking of things like that. You're just thinking about how do I get that from there to here. And did you think like that when you were in the thick of it, or on reflection, done your time in prison, come out and reflect? Well, only on reflection. In the thick of it, you don't think about anything. You've not got time to be uh, thinking about w what happens with the. Th the stuff, you know what happens, and I think you just push it. I think criminals tend to have little cupboards in the mind that they can bury uh, un-nastiness in, I suppose. And how would you away. describe Steve Mee today? Uh, just an artist, that's all I do, 24-7. Paint pictures, do shows all over the country. Uh, that's it, just paint paintings. And when people like me come along and want to talk to you about your past, your history, your criminality, mm. your art, what do you think when people are interested in listening to your story, your journey? Yeah, it's, it's, it always seems strange because i never seen it as anything other than what I was doing at the time. You know, I've never, I've never gone up to somebody and said, do you know who I am? You know, that's how, it's just been a thing that I did at the time. 
I've never used it against people or, you know, to my, to my knowledge, I've never bullied anybody because of my position or anything like that. I just, people just used to work with us and that was it. And when people start with, um, who is Steve Me, we have to go back to your childhood then. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, what your life was like from, I don't know, the day you can remember until you committed your first ever crime. Yeah, we came up, uh, a big family, nine of us, nine kids, uh, mum and dad. My mum was, uh, she, she had Parkinson's disease and used to drink a lot of alcohol and take the Parkinson's drugs, which used to send a looper. So she was all over the place, uh, which led me to run rampant as a kid, really. And uh, I think my my earliest crime where, where I've got the thingy was my own primary school, at the age of nine, where I went back on my own and, and burgled it, left the door open with a bit of balsa wood in the the push exit door, left that and then came back and got the, uh, the the collection box. What what motivated you to do that at nine I, years again, old? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the, being poor. I'd already been shoplifting by this time because we used to get uh, a certain amount of money to go shopping uh, off my mum and it was never enough. And if we came back without everything, we used to get beat up. So we used to shoplift and bring bring it back. So we had no choice really. So and that, I think that was about eight. Was that part that of was the training? Me. Was that part? Definitely part of the thing. It, so your mum knew what you were doing or yeah, had yeah. to do? Yeah, had to do, yeah. And, and come Monday, we, we was round... Uh, so we'd do, go on Friday, and come Monday, we was out selling the stuff we'd stolen, which was supposed to be our food for the week, to the neighbours. That's how poor we was at the time. You know, and we used to sell more food. Found out, I found out at the age of nine that if I stole more food, I could have more food to eat at home. It's quite a simple process when you're young and poor. They're very desperate. Yeah, well, yeah, but we didn't notice it as kids. It was just... Most people in, in that area, New, New Tunise, was there was some who, who had a bit of money, but it was a poor area. It was all in the same thing. But we, we because of so many of us, we, I think it hits us a bit more than other people in, in the area. And not everybody, you know, to be clear, not everybody who comes from deprived poor areas do end up going on and committing crime. No. Sometimes it's because the right role models are not there, whether it is your mother yeah. or your father or elder brothers what yeah. was your siblings like? Because you say you had nine. Uh, yeah, no, none of them. None of them committed crimes, none of them. Really? Just me, yeah. And where do you fit in that nine? I'm in the middle. So I'm right in the middle of them. So it was, uh, I, I got it from both sides. So my younger ones was the ones I went shoplifting with, my, my younger brother and sister. And then the, the others was uh, just workers, really. Nobody, I didn't get it from my, my family. My dad was uh, a straight working man. And like I say, my mum was just off her head most of the time anyway, so. And, and what about the sort of older adults or children? Were there no mentors during your time that sort of said, that's wrong, don't do that, go down this no, road? No, the, the, the mentors was the other way. You know, go take him up to the, the, the canals and, and the, the warehouses up there. We'll get him through a little window. That was the people who, who was my mentors. who used to take me burgling and stuff like that. Not Not like in these days where they go and look after you and things, no. Nine years old, first burglary, your own school. Yeah. Where did that lead to? That led to uh, getting a good hiding off the, the local Bobby, uh, my mum, my dad, and everybody else who wanted to hit me that day because I, I went to a local shop and bought a big Toblerone 
Uh, within a few hours, the police had been round to all the local shops because they knew it was a kid because it was just bits of money that was taken. Pennies. Remember the old pennies? Uh, I, I got a clear image of walking down the street with short pants and pockets full of pennies. But, uh, yeah, I went and bought a Toblerone and took the rest home. It was only a couple of quid, I think. At the, I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't a lot. And then the, the, the local Bobby came. He, he In front of my dad, just smacked me across the head. You know, and then my dad did the same, and then my mum did the same as, as well. So, But it wasn't a deterrent? No, no. Didn't steer you in the right direction? I don't want to get slapped around the head again. I'm going no. to go on the right path. Where no. did it lead to? That led to uh, more of the same thing, uh, becoming known in, in the area as well, you know, by the older ones, and they'd send me out. I learned how to steal cars by the time I was 12. By 13, I was in uh, a place called Foston Hall, where they used to just beat you up as soon as you walked in. Foston Hall being a prisoner, young... Uh, young offenders, it was, uh, remember, was it Michael Howard, the short, sharp shock system? Yeah, yeah. That was fast and all. It was, it's uh, now a woman's prison, isn't it? A female I prison, think so, I think. Yeah. Or, or brutal a place. Absolutely brutal. So you were sent to prison the very first time when you were 13 years 13, old? 13, yeah. For stealing 13 cars. 13 cars? Yeah. Well, really, it was one car and the rest was TICs. Taken into that, consideration. That the sergeant beat out of me, yeah. So, so it was different times. What did you get out of stealing a car? It was just joyride. I was just a kid. That's why I found out that I could do it and... Ended up on the, the local uh, waste ground. Found it really great to be able to drive, and then it just led from there, car after car after car, which then led into ringing cars, which was easy at the time again. But again, different times, different police about, different everything. You know, I had police phoning me up, telling me to bring the car in that they'd seen me in. So you weren't a very good criminal then? They knew everything no, you were up to? Well, yeah, I suppose at that age, but they only have to see you in a car and they know that you're a car thief or a car ringer. And you drive past them, which is so easy to do in places like Manchester. It's interesting because when you talk about your childhood uh, uh, in terms of the poverty and the desperation mm. um, and, and you did what you did because you wanted what you didn't have, your family didn't have food, but by the age of 13, you were doing it out of joy yeah. rather than desperation or, or need. So why did it embed itself? How does it embed itself into you becoming a criminal for the thrill of it as opposed to the desperation? But at 13, we were still poor. You know, we, the, the family was still in the same situation. It was bad times around them times as well. So you're looking at what, in the early 70s, beginning of the 70s, it wasn't a good time for anybody really. You know, and it just kept on building, I suppose. You know, I, I did settle down for a bit and got had my first son. Is this when you got out of Foston Hall? Yeah, I got out of Foston Hall, went back at it again, stealing cars. Uh, the only difference when I came out of Foston Hall is that I was like a greyhound. You know, nobody, no, the police couldn't catch me or nothing. I used to just wait for them and run away and... Nobody could catch her, so they what, trained what it, her well. What, what was that experience like in Foster Hall then? Did it not, it was a short, sharp shot, that policy, yeah, it but was. it didn't short, sharp shot you? No. Well, once you've been beaten up a few times, it doesn't bother you. Oh, it didn't bother me. You know, you, you, you used to make you stand on the, the exercise yard at six in the morning, do a five-mile run in them old long shorts like Stanley Matthews, and then plimsolls, freezing cold, and a, and a vest. You do a five-mile run, then you come and do a circuit, and there's that, there was that many, there's about 10 guards watching you as you do it. And you miss one out and they just come and punch you in the face. 
That's how brutal it was in those days. I mean, they've been prosecuted for it now, haven't they? Mm. Uh, quite a few times. But it was just violence all the way through. So that's not going to teach anybody anything. You, uh, how did it change you then? Uh, it made me fit. I suppose that, that the, the only thing I can say about Foster and all is that it made me fit. It didn't. It made me learn how to duck as well. You know, that, that's how it never taught me anything apart from getting fit. So coming out of prison wasn't a deterrent. Well, you were back at it. Back at it. And then just settled down for a, uh, till I was about 20. I got a, ended up with my own house and a, a shop. Uh, I was selling bicycles at the time. And then uh, sort of 81, had a few problems and just ended up going back at it, really. But So you were legit for a few years? A few years, yeah. About five or six years. Things went wrong? Yeah, went wrong again. Uh, got involved with some lads who, who was doing other things and then I got dragged into it. I wasn't at it at the time, but got dragged into it. Got 18 months for uh, a few different things. Got it re reduced uh, on appeal. But by that time, my, my wife had left me because of it. And uh, I was sort of on my own, so I ended up going back straight to Holland, really. Sort of 80, 80, 81 when I left to go to Holland. Why Holland? Uh, just the, the, the idea was drugs or cannabis because it was getting – it was quite quiet at the time. Uh, not many people knew about cannabis in, in the 80, 1980, 81. Uh, maybe in certain areas they knew a bit more, but in, in the area I came from, it was nobody really knew about it. You mean in terms of consuming it consuming or trafficking it? it? No, consuming it. No, no, nobody I knew at the time knew anything about trafficking. Nobody. But I uh, ended up getting a, a few thousand pounds and put that to uh, one of the worst trafficking uh, events of the, the 20th century, I think. What do you mean by that? Well, it's just cowboys. We, we, knew, we knew nothing. You know, we knew that they sold cannabis in, in, in Holland, in these cafes, never been before. And three of us travelled down in a car that blew up on the motorway. It was just an old banger. And we all had to get on the, the train. And we all ended up at Felixstowe uh, Port, where we all got our passports together, so... Any distinction of me being the, the one who set it up was gone out of the window. We all travelled together and we all came back together, you know. But we, uh, we ended up going into the coffee shops and being chased out of those about 10 and maybe more. So you've got yeah. the money, you've yeah. gone to Holland and you've just randomly gone to try gone and buy cannabis. Shops, yeah. Didn't have a deal set up or anything no, like that? Nothing. No. What, 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 what? What caused the mind shift and, and, and the risk that you were about to take, given that no one was doing it, so you had no, I hesitate to say mentors in the drug trafficking yeah. trade, but you, you've gone on this mission solo? Well, the, the, yeah, I was the boss of it, or the control of it, I suppose, but there's three of us together. They were supposed to be doing the carrying, but because we all got intertwined, we was all together anyway. But I don't, I don't know what made the thinking of it. I, I knew that I had £2,000. I knew that I could go over there and buy stuff. I didn't know other people who were selling it, but they was mostly the, 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 the blacks in Moss Side. And they wasn't doing this soap, but the, uh, I want to say the white side of, of the drug-taking world was smoking that soap, mm. that Moroccan soap. Mm. Everybody knows about it from the past. It was disgusting. And uh, I think, I don't even think I was smoking at the time. 
but I was seeing it, people having it all the time and realising it there was money in it. So I knew that if we went over there, surely they must be selling it, which he was. But it took us, uh, like I say, about 10, maybe more coffee shops. And we ended up in the Hells Angels. And that's who we bought our first kilo of. £2,000 kilo of cannabis. No, your... £1,300 it was. You can even remember how yeah, much it cost. No, I can remember the stuff. I, one bar, it was about an inch thick, and it was like rocket fuel compared to what everybody else had tried. So it, it, it flew out, you know. So you got it back to the UK and distributed it? Yeah, we got it back through a comedy of errors because we got back on the boat. Uh, uh, they'd smoked, had, had a bit to drink. We fell asleep. We got up. We was the last ones off the boat. Everybody had gone. There was, there was one copper left. And he had to help us get over the barrier. And uh, one, of the, one of the lads had strapped it to his stomach and uh, he couldn't jump over the, the barrier. So the copper had to help him over the barrier. But, uh, so all three of us, it was a comedy of errors. But it, it led to, within we, we was back within a week. It was two and then it was four. And then we, we learned from what we'd found out by mistake that if we stay on the boat, there's nobody there. And we ended up just throwing it off at the, the front end of the boat onto a spare bit of land and then people would come and pick it up in the in the bags full, 40, 50 kilo. Then it was 100 kilo, then it was a couple of hundred and then we lost it all and that's how it, it goes. When you're trafficking hundreds of kilos of cannabis, what is the street value of that kind of drug? Well, at the time, when we first got it back, we were getting five grand a kilo for it. I mean, the salts was bringing about two or three at the time. But ours was good stuff. We we ended up with a good contact. But that varied all the time, depending on whether you got there and they had it or not. You know, you ended up with sh really terrible soaps. And and this is not an advert for people to go smuggling cannabis, but um, the, the, the benefits, the financial benefits, obviously changed the trajectory of your life because now you've got more money in your pocket than you probably ever had before. Yeah. W why didn't you stop then when you were sort of earning money, had money? Losing money. Losing money. Yeah. So I was the next one, isn't it? Uh, every drug dealer on the planet will say, yeah, we'll stop after the next one or the next one. And then you've got another two people in your team and they need looking after. And then you've got another four people in your team and they need looking after. And the money is no longer just yours. It's a, it's a team. And once you get to, to bigger amounts, you know, it's the more people are involved in it. Was it worth it? No, none of it was worth it. No, I'd, I'd change every day of it for a, a week of freedom outside with my family. How, how did that Holland-UK trafficking come to an end then? What what happened? Did you get caught at some point? Yeah, we got caught in, in Holland. Me, me and Curtis got arrested on the same morning, early morning. Down raids with uh, stun grenades and flashbangs and helicopters and all special units came for us. We'll talk about that in a minute, but before Curtis Warren and your relationship with Curtis Warren, but before you, or was Curtis already involved with you at this point? No, I met Curtis in 1991. Right. So before Later. then, when yeah. you were on these missions, mm. you never got arrested for that. You never did time for that. Never got caught for that. No, that. 1991 was the first uh, drug offence for me. Right. But I heard that or read that you at some point were in a prison and absconded from that prison. Yeah, for Castle. Oh, yeah. that's when you were doing time for casting. Yeah, so I got I got nicked for, uh, again, stupidity, really. I got nicked for a, a, a car, Datsun uh, 
and Nissan Silvia that would uh, run completely. So it was a total write-off. And we got seen driving down the road again. So they get a phone call to come in and thinking, but we had a lot of money in the car, a few grand in the car. And I decided not to, to give it in. But uh, I'd been caught on a motorbike, so a BMW, outside the shop, went in to buy an helmet. And then when I come out, I got jumped on by quite a few police and uh, got taken in and got four months for that. But while I was going up for the thingy, the police came down and said, you know, TIC this and the, the cars, and it'll get run in with this four month. Well, I could told them not to and told them to bugger off and all that stuff. And then I got gate arrested and got 18 months for it. So not a smart move again. And it was while uh, once I'd uh, absconded that I went over to Holland again. And it was that, from that point, from the thingy, I was on the run. You don't call it on the run, but absconding, you're on the run, aren't you? Mm. So I think that was 87. And I went there till, till I got caught in 91 into Holland. So you were wanted here in the UK, but you went to Holland and continued your operation of drug trafficking? Not so much drugs, uh, all, all drugs. It was all sorts of things. We used to do crime, car ringing in, in, in Holland. And, you know, it was, uh, you got caught for that over there. You got very little, but. I ended up getting a chase in a stolen car. Uh, I think I was 87, 80, yeah, 87. And we ended up in a big mad chase uh, across Holland where they thought we was IRA terrorists. And the car was in a place called Assen. Uh, one of my friends foolishly spoke to somebody uh, while we was out looking for cars and stuff. And he thought they was Irish. And a couple of weeks before, the, the proper IRA had been caught on the border. So the call had come out that there's more IRA in the town. And they came after me. I drove away. Uh, a policeman hit the back of the car, flew over the top of the car. So the call then went out, that officer down. And the uh, I think they, they hit the car six times with, with guns and, shot, and they shot at the car. While you were in the car? Well, I was in the car being chased, yeah. They were shooting after you? Yeah, six times it was. Did anybody get hit? No. no the you car, got arrested? We got arrested a few hours later where we'd got away, uh, lost them all and ended up, up hiding up a tree and they found us. The dogs found us eventually. But every, everything was looking for us because they thought it was terrorists. But you weren't? No, no. You were just car thieves? Just car thieves, yeah. But you got a prison sentence for that? It got nine months. So we had uh, stolen credit cards and the card as well and we got nine months for that, including the the hurt that we, we gave to the, the police. But they, they came to court and... Started off saying that it was intentional, but then they they realised that it crashed into the back of us, and so it was. A, it ended up okay. In terms of the charges against, yeah, it, it went police. from serious like, like GBH to nothing really. It was so you mistake. ended up in prison, and yeah. is that when you first meet Curtis Warren? No, no, that's where I met uh, a lot of Turkish uh, people because I tried to because I was on the run by this time, so I tried to escape from there. Which was uh, they called her Who is Van Buren, which is like a local remand place, but it's it's not high security or anything. And uh, a big Turkish gang of Turkish blokes smuggled some uh, diamond wire in for us, and it was they they had square bars on the window, just little thin strips of uh, metal, but they was all square. So if you took the middle four out, you could get through the window. But I got about halfway through and it snapped. So. 
of following day because you're allowed to escape in Holland. Technically, you don't get any extra time. As long as you don't create any violence or any damage you have to pay for as well. So there's no crime against escaping from a prison? No, you're allowed to escape. Yeah. Most of Europe's like that, actually. But over, over here, you get highly punished for it. But you didn't succeed in getting out? No, then they took me to, uh, because I was wanted back for the absconding, they took me to Groningen Police Station, kept me there for about three weeks. And eventually the, the sergeant came and said, look, they're not coming. They're supposed to come and pick me up, you know, the, the uh, customs are English. They're supposed to come and pick me up and take me home. But they never came and he just let me go. And that was it. Then I went straight. I was I was in Istanbul within a few days, mixing with the Turkish people. So you built a relationship with Inside, the Turkish? Yeah, yeah. Met some big uh, heavy-duty Turks, I suppose, at the time, yeah. What was your mission in Turkey? Just cannabis again. We just stayed with the cannabis there. We get loads of uh, cannabis. We had all the contacts with all the Moroccans and everything. So you were moving cannabis from Turkey to where? To back to Holland. Right. Yeah. Selling it, making money, Selling it, making more money there than you would in England with it. What did you do with the money? Uh, reinvested it a lot and lived. Because you know, when when I escaped properly in '91, I was on the run properly. So. The amount of money it costs to keep you away from everything. The escape you're talking about in '91 was in the UK, in, in Manchester, UK. in in Liverpool. How did you get back to the UK? So you're on the run from this Kirkham, even though they didn't come and get you. You're trafficking drugs from Turkey to Holland. How did you end up back in the UK in prison? When we got deported, when they arrested us for the for the big one in in Calais. What happened there? There was. Uh, Involved with the Cali cartel, and we shipped 440 kilo back, and it came on top. We got arrested. They came late in the, in the early morning. Hold on a minute. How did you move from the Turkish operation to the Cali cartel, cartel, the Colombian narcos? So there's quite a few things in between. We, we started doing the the cocaine from uh, once we finished with cannabis because I, I was taking cannabis from Spain to Holland and was getting cars from England, selling them in Spain, swapping them for cannabis, moving it up to Holland and selling it there because we was all trying to get the good stuff that sell better than it would in England. So we used to get quality, send it and sell it in Holland. And then uh, a bit of a group got together and uh, asked if I wanted to do a smuggle. So I was just a mule for it and, the, and it was to Ecuador. And the, the 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 trick was that we we went there. The military had put it. You take it to the the airport. The military had put it on the on the plane, and uh, you'd have to get it off yourself at the at the end in Europe. And uh, the only thing that was in the suitcase was cocaine, twenty four kilo, in one suitcase. And then you have to kamikaze it through the the customs. And if you got through, you got through. If you didn't, you know, you'd only end up with a few years anyway. So. It was a good gamble to take, so but I got through with twenty four kilos, so and then I got the money from that. I sold mine in uh, Switzerland. Got about twice as much as other people was getting for it at the time. And it just built and built and then we ended up getting infiltrated through a Belgium gang. And I ended up getting caught in nineteen ninety one here in in England for uh, forty kilo of cannabis and 6.3 kilo of cocaine. That was in 1991. 
And then uh, while on remand for, for that is when I met Curtis. It sounds like a lot of drugs, which were worth a lot of money. Yeah. Sounds like there was a lot of money going through you and the gangs that you were operating w with. Mm. Um, and people, I suspect, will think that Steve Mee was a very wealthy man at that point who could have taken a step back and let others do what you were still doing. Why did you continue to do what you were doing? Well, at that point then, once, once I met Curtis, I was in prison, obviously, and then I escaped from there because at the time it was a spot. I always suspected to get about 10, 12 years for 6.3 kilo. What's that worth street value? Uh, well, they put it at millions, didn't they, at the time, but it was, you know, you're getting 15, 20 grand a kilo for it, so not much. But what we got, what it ends up at street value is just some fantastical amount that they sort of make up out of the sky. And uh, so I escaped and went back to Holland, more or less, straight away. Tell me about that escape, because what I've read, I've read a couple of different versions. You know, there's one version I read where a gang, you know, um, sprung you from a, um, a security van, a prison van, with rockets and weapons Rocket and all sorts yeah. of things. But I've heard you say absolute. Yeah. What's the truth? Well, the, the, the truth is is that the, the, the plan, the, the only plan that we had and the only one chance that, that I had to escape was to get off the coach. And I'm talking about a coach, not like you see now where you've got the, the horse box type transport. I'm talking about old coaches. And this was that old that it had a sloping back. It was that old. And the, the, it had just the front door, which had an emergency pull on it. And uh, the, the, we was, I got moved to Risley because of the Strange Ways riot thing. Uh, they had to rebuild it again, some of the cells, and they moved us all around. I ended up in Risley. And my transport was from Risley to Manchester Crown Court. So I've been found guilty at the Crown Court. They shipped us to Risley eventually. And then was waiting for... Uh, transport from Risley to back to Crown for sentencing. And it was then when I, we, uh, well, I escaped. I had to take a, an, innocent, an innocent criminal with me who had nothing to do with it. But, uh, How did that come about? Why? That, that came about on the, on the actual steps of the, the bus. I was, uh, I was cut to him and this lad, uh, uh, I knew him, but he didn't know anything about what was going on. And I said, something's going to happen in a bit. And he went, uh, you know, I didn't get time to say anything. And uh, we all got on the bus. And it was prison guards who was taking us at them times. It wasn't uh, police like it is now for cat A's and what have you. And I was just a normal prisoner. You know, it wasn't anything thingy. It was, one, uh, cat A wasn't a big thing in, in 1980, 1991. And uh, we got on and the, the, the instructions was that I had to get off the coach. So somebody was going to stop the coach, which they did. Uh, they pulled up, pulled up on the roundabout at Risley. I don't know if you know it. So just outside the prison is a big roundabout, which puts you on a dual carriageway, then puts you on the motorway. And uh, he, he stopped the, the coach there, the driver. He'd been there all morning as well, which is, uh, you know, sitting outside in a prison yard uh, all morning because we didn't get moved till two o'clock in the afternoon. So I didn't even think he'd be there. But he'd, he'd managed to stay in place. He'd, he stole that car just before he got there as well on, on his way to it. So, uh, And then he pulled up on the roundabout. And as he pulled up, a police van pulled up 
on one of the, the, the exits and the, the copper was shaking his head. You know, as I was an idiot pulling up on the roundabout, you know, and he, he drove off up the dual carriageway, but then pulled out again just quite a bit further up, uh, slammed the brakes on, the coach slammed the brakes on, and I just got up and shouted, nobody move, and nobody moved. And by the time I got to the front of the coach, because it was only a, wasn't a full lem coach, it was about a three-quarter lem coach. By the time I got to the front of it, I dragged the ladder along and uh, pulled the emergency exit, got off a coach. By that time, they'd rallied themselves, the guards, uh, and jumped on this young lad. And I managed to drag him into the car and they just let go. No guns, no rockets? No, no, nothing, no. That guns and rockets only came in, uh, well... That, uh, I know why it came in, you know, the, the, everybody always denied it. That came in when me and Curtis was, was caught in Holland and they wanted a way to get us to be triple cut A and that's what they used. Okay, sure. Because in, in Holland, what we'd done, 420 kilo, was nothing. It was, you'd end up on the normal wing, in the normal prison. You wouldn't end up in a, a triple cut A super... Uh, well, it was an ex-concentration uh, camp that we was in. You're in the back of the car with this unknowing convict who is now innocently escaped with you, yeah. and and you make your escape. Where did you go? What did you do? Well, there was obviously there was a plan in place. We got talked to a house. Uh, skill sales was waiting there to take the cuffs off. But the problem is, is that we was the problem came before it. I was supposed to be attached to a, a six foot summit black man right he was part of the thingy and then on the day that we went down to reception they called somebody else's name out he got a cup to somebody else and i got cuffed to this young lad so it was uh completely different so when we got to the to the house in in liverpool and the the people who was waiting there who, who knew what was supposed to be coming ended up with two white men there so it was uh, a bit of a shock so there was a few phone calls saying do we get rid of them both or what, what do we do? You know, it's a panic. And eventually somebody who, who knew one of us managed to uh, get through to show that it was me. So we cut, cut him off and uh, somebody took him in a taxi to Lime Street train station, dropped him off. He went and met his missus and made her pregnant that night. Had a baby from that night as well. And uh, he ended up going to court and getting off on the, the little charge that he was on anyway. So it was a... It was a thing that he's talked about all his life. So, so something good came out of yeah, something what good most came people... out of that. But for you, terrible. For me, I ended up uh, getting took to uh, a flat in Toxteth. I had to stay there for about three months. I was fed every other day, and people looked after me until we could arrange a private plane to get out of the country. Because uh, it was all over the papers, uh, all over the news. Everybody was looking for me, and you know, I, I was kept. Uh, protected for quite a bit. I'm interrupting this midpoint to let you know this podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow the podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe and like button wherever you listen to the Second Chance Podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that'd be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests 
and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. But you were a well-known face at this point, at least to the police, because you've had this career of being a juvenile criminal who's now escalated into a major drug trafficker who is escaping from police vans with or without guns, you, you know, and now you're wanted and you're, you're hiding. Hmm. How did you get out of the UK? In a private plane. You did get a private plane. A, an airport, a small airport in, in Yorkshire. We got in, there was a pilot waiting there for us and we just got in a plane and flew out. Landed at Leylistad Airport in, in Holland and just walked out. There's nobody there, no nothing. And you went back to doing more drug trafficking? Yeah, well, I ended up back in, in Amsterdam. Uh, and while I was over there, after a few months, Curtis' case collapsed as well. Uh, so his case completely collapsed. So he, so was, he was in Risley at the same no, time? he was in Strange Ways at the time. And that's where you first met him? I met him in Strange Ways, yeah. Before your escape? Yeah. What was your relationship like in Strange Ways? Well, it was good. We've been to the same places all over Europe, South America, done more or less the same things. Uh, and I, I knew a lot of the guards in Strange Ways because I've been in and out a few times and I had a bike shop where... Uh, a lot of them came and bought push bikes, so I knew where they lived. So they were really friendly with me, you know. I got on with them quite well. And Curtis was cat A. But because of, of who I knew on the wing, all, all the SOs and all that, they, uh, they let us go into his cell, which he was never allowed to do as cat A. He used to get him out. He used to do a bit of food for him. He used to play chess together. You know, they just used to leave us alone, which they shouldn't have done, really. But uh, then I got, from that point, I got to know Curtis pretty well. By that time, and, and we never were... made any plans to meet or anything because we both thought it was finished. Right, you know, he was in for that, and I was in for mine. What was he in for at the time? He was in for the five hundred kilo, no, thousand kilo. Sorry, that got caught in Hol uh, got caught here in Holland and Belgium, I think. But he's already got a reputation around him of being connected with the Colombian cartel. Yeah, he'd, he'd already got five hundred kilo through. That was the one where the customs didn't drill through far enough. So they, they used the wrong size drill and half an inch away or whatever it was. And then he, they, they ended up finding out that he'd, he'd got the 500 kilo through. You know, So they was after him and then they, they tried it again with 1,000. That's when he got caught. But it all collapsed, that case. Just, just for the record, for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, Curtis Warren has been labelled, you know, the kingpin of drug trafficking here in the UK, the yeah. biggest drug trafficker there ever has been in this country um, and has still got a reputation every time his name's mentioned mm. um, because of his direct relationship with the narcos, the Colombians, etc. You've met this guy, you're in Strange Rage, you've built up a friendship, didn't arrange anything, You've escaped. He's still in there, but then his case collapsed. And you meet up in Holland together? Just phone calls at first. Just phone calls. And then we, we meet eventually, yeah. Back in Holland, I've already uh, been supplying for, for quite a bit because what I settled into was that I realised that I'm, I'm on the run. It's, it's big trouble here. I'm, I'd already been convicted for 22 years in my absence. Really? What? Tell me about that. You got twenty-two years. Yeah, when I escaped, right? When I escaped, I was on my way to court for sentence, and they gave you twenty-two years in the absence. Yeah, more out of anger, I think, than anything else, because the the judge wasn't happy, and I didn't appear in court on that day, so they weren't happy. 
And uh, yeah, I had the, 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 the 22. And once we got over to, once I got over to Holland, I was concentrating on uh, supplying the, the people there. So anything I was going to do, I, I sort of forgot about England now. I'm just working Europe and dealing with people there. Why didn't you just keep a, a, a low profile? You know, you've just dodged. I say dodge, they're always going to catch up with you. But I mean, you just dodged the 22 years sentence. Money. You didn't have any money to, to sit there and, and pretend to be someone else. Didn't even have a proper passport. You know, I had a 12-month passport at the time. So I got a decent 10-year one in somebody else's name. But, I mean, you're looking at £5,000 back then to, to buy a passport. I didn't have it directly. I, you know, I soon earned it once I started doing a few drug smuggles and things like that and, and buying and selling stuff for people. Well, that's, that's where I set in and then I was buying it for quite a few people, but mostly just selling it to them there. So how did you and Curtis become partners or in the same organised gang group? Uh, well, like I say, my, my gang as such was from Manchester, Moss Side, Eric Side. And... Uh, the, the two, Liverpool gang and Manchester gang, sort of came together with, with me in the middle sort of thing. Uh, before that, none of them sort of knew each other and and things. So I was, I was sort of like a, a link in between. And uh, that that was it, really. Once I got to, to Holland and after I met Curtis, everything started coming through me. You know, I think he was paying 20 grand per, per kilo at the time. And the people I knew, I was getting it for 12. So it was a big difference. Well, my contacts was better than the ones that he had at the time. And then the, the, it just carried on like that for a bit. I just, like I say, I was mostly in Europe. And uh, I was making more money just from uh, people who knew me from what, from doing the smuggle from Ecuador. Uh, they knew me from then. And... When, whenever they had anything that they, they wanted to sell, a lot of them came through me and I used to sell it on to everybody. German, Swiss, anybody. English used to come over. I used to put a couple of thousand on for, for myself. And then eventually the Colombians got to know that they could drop off 100 kilo and 200 kilo and 500 kilo, 1,000 kilo, a couple of thousand kilo. And they come back a week later and they get the money. So... It soon went up there that my reputation was okay and they could rely on me to sell it and the money would be there. And one, like I say, on one occasion, I put five five million pound in the boot of a car and the Colombians had come and pick it up. Five million pounds yeah. in cash? And they left it in the car. They came on Monday and asked me where the money was. They thought they'd just give me the, the cocaine to, to sell and then they put the money up. And they'd been driving about Amsterdam with five million in the, in the boot. So, so my reputation was was up there in the, in the first place. Did you did you have to go over to Colombia at any point yourself and meet with the, yeah, the yeah, cartel? I went all the time. I went about eight times. Who who was you meeting when you were out there? I mean, I, I'm not asking for names, but I mean, what type of organised criminals were you meeting? Uh, well, we went straight to the top. I was, meet, I was meeting uh, within a few weeks of being there. I was with Lucho, the the head of the Cali cartel. In, in uh, Bogota. Were you not scared? I mean, I'm asking that question based on 
the movie Narcos and, and the reputation of Colombians, Pablo Escobar and whatnot that we've all read and heard about, mm. just killing people willy-nilly just because of the way they answer the question. Well, there's a few things. So much happened recently that I'll tell you about in a minute. But the 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 what couple of the meetings was what happened to the drugs. So I was the first person who was in front of them when they'd lost the three thousand kilo. So a thousand went to Curtis, uh, the other two went into mainland Europe, but all three thousand got captured by the police, and they didn't know anything. They didn't know where it'd gone. They knew they thought it'd been caught, and so I was the first person in front of them to try and explain where, where the 3,000 kilo had gone. And we went into Bogota and the meeting, I had me a uh, Colombian translator with me. It was a criminal from Holland. And uh, he, he sort of dissolved into about an inch tall, you know, because he, he knew where the conversation was going. They, they was asking more or less, whether do we kill him now or do we, we find out properly? You know, because I, they'd lost 3,000 kilo. And even though maybe it's not a lot to them, but, it's all down to reputation, isn't it? So I then had to explain what had happened, even though it wasn't part of my, my crime, it was nothing to do with me, uh, and I could prove where I'd come from. So that was my only, sa that, my only saving grace was that I had escaped, was all over the papers, and uh, even the Colombians could uh, look into Google and find me. So they was in and out of the, the boardroom and, Eventually, they said, yeah, okay, we, we believe you. Let's get on to do a bit of work. So then we had to start discussing then transport details and all that. That went on for uh, about two years. And, and how, did, how did you see yourself in, in these moments? I mean, you're sitting in front of me now. You're Steve May. You've done your time. You're out. You've changed your direction, and we will talk about that. But at that moment, when you're in the presence of the Colombian cartel who have a huge reputation or at least did and probably mm. still do. How did you see yourself then? Because I mean, to just be stood in the room negotiating with people, not only for your life, but having to explain the, the drugs. And I, I just can't fathom that. And I don't suppose many people can, but how did you see yourself at that moment? Again, uh, people don't understand that. It's just you're there. Somehow you, you, your life drove you to that in a, in a way. I mean, you've created the problem yourself by committing the crimes in the first place. And one thing led to another. You know, I was in Holland. I was happy in Holland. And then the idea came that if we went to Colombia, I might get a few million. You know, I was expecting at least a million each off the first delivery. And until I had that sort of money behind me, I thought I couldn't relax because it was costing a fortune. I moved out in Holland about six times just because people didn't deliver the milk you know i'd leave a complete house that we paid fortunes for and just run to it to uh, mostly i used to run to france you know if someone spooked me while i was on the run but it was costing fortunes to to be on the run you know i ended up buying a plane uh, uh eight nine hundred thousand pound plane a uh, gilded plane sorry so that i could travel in it an eight-seater i learned to fly in holland as well so, you know, we, we was going to be flying into airports on a special system rather than on the main, going through the main customs. But even that turned into a disaster. It turned into uh, Midnight Express in, in uh, Turkey. We, we landed there and we came through. We had the full uniform on and uh, we got stopped and got ragged. The plane got searched completely. And then we went to meet the people we was going to meet. 
And it was only because of one of them that I managed to get out uh, from the airport. And uh, they, they let us go. And then when we got on the plane on the on the runway, they came again. Another saw another set of uh, police. Three times they did it. And I thought we was finished, but we ended up getting off and flying to Egypt to arrange uh, the captain of a ship that was going to be bringing the stuff in. So you were kind of, I say multitasking, but you were dealing with different organised drug trafficking gangs, the Colombians, the Turkish, yeah. and and no doubt Dutch, Dutch, British, German, Swiss. Yeah. And you were involved in all of these deals, all the negotiations. Yeah. And what was Curtis Warren's role? I mean, you don't have to answer that, but I mean, you know, given that he has a reputation, I mean, what was his role in it all at this point? Well, he, he just managed the, the, the material when it came back. That's what he was good at selling. How did you eventually get caught? Uh, well, there's a, a few theories on it. Uh, I, I still believe, I've always believed this, is that we got mixed up with a really big uh, group called the, 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 the Dutch, called the ERT Affair. Uh, they were bringing literally 20,000 kilo at a time. And it's all over. You can check it. You read about it, you'll you find it interesting. Call the ERT affair from Holland. And it was ahead of the customs, ahead of the police, and a gang of criminals, mostly uh, gypsies, and uh, who, who were met later on in the, in the Triple Cat A. It was called Cobus, the King of the Gypsies. And he was uh, coordinating it and was bringing about 20 or 1,000 kilo a month in. And it was a police and Thing. He got 14 years, but he also got a get-out-of-free card. If you'd give the details of the, the head of the police and the customs who was involved in it, they'd let him go and let him keep his money as well. But I think we, we was patsies for them. When their 20,000 kilo came through, our 420 came through, and uh, we, we got arrested for it. I think that's what happened to, to us. You mean somebody grasped you up? No, well, yeah, the, the Colombians maybe. Because they were sending the 22,000 kilo and uh, put this one in, draw the attention to them, and then they get the big one through. I'm not saying it is, but I do believe that's what happened. Right. Right. Okay. So take you off the streets and allow the big one to get through, which yeah. is a typical kind of formula, if you like. Yeah. You were arrested by the Dutch police. Mm. Were you sentenced in Holland or? Yeah. I was sentenced in Holland. The. Uh, they, they, they have a special team to arrest uh, serious criminals, you know, and call the arrest arty team, ex-military. And they, they come with uh, with everything, Angry, uh, stun grenades, flashbangs, come through all your windows with charges and all that stuff. And then they carry you away naked and just, that's it. And they're putting us in a prison. Uh, putting us in a normal prison, though, because once we found out the, the amount, we went just to an I got sent to a place called Gravo, uh, which is just a normal prison. And then it was Christmas Eve, uh, 1996, and the, the prison went quiet, literally. And uh, the door came flying open with, with the arrest arty team coming into the prison for me. Got me on the floor naked, took me out by hands and feet, uh, put a, a goggle around me, a helmet on, a bulletproof vest, put tracky bottoms on by this time. And uh, so I had goggles on, full goggles, headphones, uh, and a crash helmet, bulletproof vest. And then I heard the, the helicopter come down. And from that point on then, 
every time I got moved, it was by a helicopter to to court, to everywhere. Even when I came out of the country, when, when I finished my sentence, he put me in an helicopter to the airport, uh, Nijmegen Airport, and then it was uh, an RAF private jet that took me to High Down in, in London. And took, was that, took them less than an hour. Was, I mean, it was obviously all called for because, Steve, you're a man who was dealing with the Turkish Mafia, the Colombian Mafia, yeah. and various other kind of organised crime groups. So you were obviously deemed a very dangerous, capable man. Not only that, you were already on the run from a UK prison, having got mm. out of a 20... You know, this, this, this is what movies are made of. How long did you get in Holland? You were going through all this experience. What was your sentence for the crime you committed? Well, the, first they gave us seven years. Uh, I appealed, and the uh, the judge gave me another year, and he actually said for being cheeky. So, well, I mean, most people would think you were. Yeah. Did you? Well, he had to appeal because it was part of the people that was involved with it. They, they was and, appealing. And, and 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 is this the one case that you and Curtis Warren were joint co-defendants? Yes. Yeah. Right. Just and how one. long did he get? He got twelve years because he caught him with. Uh, all sorts of stuff in his house and guns and stuff like that. Well, I was going to ask, given the way that you were moved from A to B um, under all this arm, w were you a man who carried a weapon? You, no, nothing. You, you didn't they, have... They didn't find anything in mind. They found my passport, that was it. They didn't find a scrap of paper or anything. But even when you were going and dealing with the cartel, etc., you didn't carry a weapon for your own, I say, protection? No, well, there's no point, is there? There's no point. I mean, my first... Trip to to Bogota was, was ridiculous. I got to the, to Bogota Airport, and the the the, the captain said we're we're being delayed at the moment, and they moved to the back of the the runway, and it was then when the military police came and took me off, because the people who was dealing with was senators and things like that. So I drove out of Bogota Airport in a, in a convoy of about six heavily armed uh, military police. Took us flying out all the way. We never stopped until we got to the the ranch that he owned. So what you're saying is that the cartel owned the the military, everything, yeah, the senators, the politicians. Uh, stayed at a few politicians' house houses. Well, you can't call them houses. One of one of them was a full size bull ring with about ten mansions all the way around it, in thousands of acres of land, and the others was. Without the bowling, but still massive places. Back in Ireland, you got seven years. You did yeah. your time in a Dutch seven, prison. Seven years, and then they give me eight, another year on top, so I got eight years. Uh, we went, like I say, from that point on, though, we was already in in the triple K A system because the, what that's when they brought in the, the mad escape. So the paperwork they sent paperwork. I got the paperwork from the Home Office saying that Steve and me had escaped with an armed gang uh, who stopped an armed police transport, which is the first lie, which was prison guards, with rocket launchers and machine guns. So we would turn, we put down, in their mind, armed police with rocket launchers and thingies. So really, it was nobody move. I got up and ran away. This is your Risley escape That's with the Risley unknowing yeah. convict next yeah. to you who ends up pregnant so, his wife, etc. So they use that. As, as a means to, to take us from a normal Dutch prison, which we would have ended up doing all our time in a normal prison, into this triple cat A prison, which was a, a place to be old, really. 
you know, that was Christmas Eve when they, when they took me there. And the first person I met was a bloke called Frankie Peters. He's still in now. And he was uh, he was 21 at the time. He was 19 when he got caught. And he was in for killing nine Turks and uh, a normal Dutch person where he, he tortured for about a week and shot him in every joint in his body. And he was doing what, what we call natural life at the time, which was 21 years. And he's still in now because they changed it over the years. At the end of your sentence in Holland, you get extradited back to the UK to do this 22 years that yeah. you escaped from. Yeah. So you're back in the UK. Not quite back in the UK. They, they, they even used the, the, the fact that I was going to be extradited. I should have been extradited uh, the following day, but they came and put the uh, arrest, arrest warrant in the night before. So that means instead of coming back to England, which I would have done naturally under armed guard, I then had to go to court to be deported. So that took about four weeks. So they managed to grab a, another four weeks free of charge, which I never got back. Oh, they, they stole that off me as well. All the crimes you got away with that you didn't yeah. do those four weeks yeah, for, you know. Can't. I tried out. to get it back, but I never got it back. You're in the UK and you're in the British prison system and yeah. you're AAA? Triple A, yeah. What yeah. does that mean for people who don't understand? I, mean, I was an A man in prison, so I yeah. know what it's like to be on the book. You know, I had the blue book with the big letter A. I, everywhere I yeah. went, dogs, escort, yeah. lights on, all that. Same thing, but 10 times worse. So the, the, the Whitemore one was where they took us first. They took us first to high down and they, they put me on the wing for about three hours. And uh, within three hours, they found out who I was. And then they, that's when they came in with all the police and closed the prison down. Put, couldn't move us to Whitemore at the time. They had to put me in the block for a minute, well, for about four weeks. And then eventually they took us to Whitemore and the Triple K. Uh, you go in there, you go into, Whitemore's a K prison anyway. Uh, so you go in through the whole security and then you drive to the back end of the prison and then all the security starts again. So you go through all the metal detectors, everything. Everybody who worked there, even the guards, they had to go through two sets of security especially your visitors, they went through it pretty bad. And you end up inside a prison, inside a prison. It's a complete prison, a complete cat-a prison inside a cat-a prison. So you'd have to escape from a cat-a prison into a cat-a prison and then escape from there. It's impossible. What was your, what was your life like in all the prisons that you've talked about in this interview? You talked about various different prisons. You talked about, you know, being in an ACAT prison within an ACAT prison, being yeah. in a slightly more open prison, being treated under gunpoint whenever you get moved from A to B. But when you were living your life, if I can put it like that, on a day-to-day -day basis, what was your life like? Because no doubt you had this reputation behind you. You were connected with, you know, the Colombian cartel, with Curtis Warren, with the Turkish mafia, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You know, people have this impression that, that, you know, someone with your reputation will be at the top of the hierarchy and that you get what you want, when you want, how you want, yeah. et cetera. Is it true? Well, not not in the triple K because you're in with, uh, well, I was in with Kenny Noy, Mickey Steele from the Essex Boys, uh, and a, 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 a Turkish lad called Kano. He was in for 400 kilo of heroin, you know, so there was all serious criminals that was already in there. And plus you was, uh, <clears throat> you had space. There's only four of us in, in a place. I think it only took about 12 anyway, but we needed, uh, or they needed 24 guards to open up in the morning. 
often they wouldn't even open us up from the cell because they didn't have enough guards to cover it. And they needed 24 guards for four prisoners. Uh, everywhere you went was behind control, obviously. Even your visits was closed visits. And that was especially true in Holland as well. So overall, I did eight years of closed visits under, under those conditions. And, uh, but like I say, had I had the choice, I would have carried on and done the rest of my sentence in there. Because you, you, you're in a cocoon. You've not got all the problems, as you know, on the wings. It can be all sorts. Of, and eventually I did get on the wing and seen some terrible things happen. Seen a few people die in, in uh, Paul Sutton. You know, there's, there's uh, not nice places. But like you say, I had a reputation as such. And uh, the reputation hit the prison as soon as uh, they moved me out of Whitemore. As soon as I got to York, when I finally got my security file, Within the first week, I was in control of every single drug on the, in the prison, even though I never dealt with any drugs at all in the prison. But on the security files, I was leading it all. And you're saying it wasn't true? Oh, yeah, it wasn't. They just put me at the top of the list straight away. Uh, I did I did send some money to somebody to so he could buy me canteen, and that was it. That, that was me at the top of the, the drug list for ages. So. But you and I know that if you're sending somebody money in their canteen, it's actually, you know. It's free canteen, it's, it's, free can it's more yeah. valuable than drugs if you're not a drug taker. Yeah, yeah. You know. And you never were, even though you dealt no, with still, so many drugs. Never. But that begs the question, um, you know, given what you did, cannabis, cocaine, mm. what do you think now about the violence and the culture that cocaine has caused, not just in Manchester and Liverpool, but across the UK, you know, yeah. How responsible, how remorseful are you, if at all, for your part in how cocaine has become the norm, etc.? Yeah, I'm completely remorseful for what I did. Not only was it a waste of my life, it was a, obviously caused a lot of problems to uh, everybody else. I missed all my upbringing. I created it the same system, I suppose, in other people's lives where they missed all their upbringing just because they could buy drugs that I'd supplied. It's, it's a horrible game. It, it wasn't back then for some reason. It didn't feel like it was. It was more of a a, a drug culture, dance culture. You know, that's how we were sort of seeing it at the time. And most of the people we knew was involved in the in the raves and the there was a club called the Roxy in Thingy. You know, it was all everybody of a like sort of thing. We didn't sort of see the seedy side of it and the the, the violence never really came near me. You know, obviously it must have gone on below in the different levels, but a lot of mine was done on trust and thingy. So I think I was, or we was, the last of, of them that people trust. After that, it seemed to just go really violent. It's good to hear you say that, you, you know, you regret what you did and you're remorseful, and that should be a message to anybody who is caught up in that, and it's not the first time I've heard that. But then you have a completely different side to Steve Me. And that is the professional artist that I think you were before you even started out on your criminal career and the, the, the yeah. detail that you've shared, but then went on to develop that ability and that skill whilst you were in prison and mm. maintain it today. Tell yeah. me about your, your art prowess. Well, uh, like when I got nicked years and years ago, when I went to Foster and all, I missed out on over a year in school. They wouldn't let me back in. Uh, I was the first person ever to go to prison from that school. So they won't let me back in. So I missed a lot of my education. 
when it came to careers day, I had nothing to offer. And my option was Manchester Abattoir, or I took some pictures into the, uh, the, the careers officer, and he, he sent me to a, an, a, an advertising agency in Manchester where I took on a, a trade of sign writing and graphic art and design and uh, completed that, got my graphic art and design uh, qualifications and then bought a shop and, like I say, went on to that. But the first thing I did once I got caught was revert back to the, the artist in me and, and sort of knew more or less straight away that, you know, that's do that, go to the gym and get your sentence done. Don't get involved in all the rest of the, the shit. And that's exactly what I did. I went through all that triple cat A, double cat A, uh, had a few problems all the way through, but never got nicked or anything. And you know how hard that is to, to not do. Mm. I mean, a lot of people didn't come near me because I was big. I was 24 stone. I used to do massive amounts of, of weightlifting and powerlifting, really. I broke the baller record in there for the bench press, oh, 220 right. kilo okay. on a clean bench. That's all I did, paint and, and train. You know, people just used to stay away from me. People just left me alone. And how do you use your painting today on the outside world? Uh, that's all I do. Paint pictures, sell them. Paint more pictures, sell them. Don't sell them that often because I, I tend to do pictures that take six to 12 months to, to, to do now. So. But I read that your art was also um, available on the Saatchi Gallery website. I mean, yeah. so that's no mean feat. You know, you've achieved quite a lot with your talent. Yeah, with the art, we did, did a big show in London about two years ago at the Oxo building. Uh, we did it in, I did it in connection with a, a rapper called Suspect. Uh, we did, got a, uh, did a, a track about me being at the, the Oxhall Tower. Don't tell me you were rapping on that. No, 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 no. I'd never <laughs> belittle myself to that. I mean, show myself up like that. But uh, it was great, great song. It just, it, 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 we turned it into an NFT. So uh, what we did is that where I was in, in, in Manchester, I was wrapped around a big uh, construction company and uh, did quite a few paintings, a lot of commissions for him. Uh, really complex ones, uh, the Titanic steam engine and really technical paintings, really, rather than thingy. Uh, old mills that was being knocked down and, you know, that the, this company thingy. So he commissioned me for, for a lot of paintings and then we got to know that, uh, a big production company in, in London who had a contact in the Oxhall Tower, which is like a, a five-storey big old mill. And I managed to fill it. So I had five floors we had a special event with, with the rap song being done. So we had all that crew there as well, which was then released as an NFT. Uh, and what what we did, which was a little bit special, I suppose, we built a five-ton prison cell in the event uh, on, the, on the ground floor, but we made it out of hemp bricks. And then I wrapped it in one of my, uh, one of my first pen and ink paintings that I did, called the Mongolian Hunter. And we wrapped it, you know, like they wrapped cars with, wrapped the, the prison cell with that design on it. And the the idea was that each brick then became an NFT. And we'd sell the, the, the brick, you buy a big brick, big hemp brick made out of hemp, which give the twist of the cannabis side of it, but obviously the legal side of it. And uh, yeah, it was a good show. We did that show. Incredible. Yeah. Just a uh, last couple of questions. 
Do you still have a relationship with Curtis Warren or did no. that die after you got arrested and did your time? Last time I spoke to him was in Strange Ways in 1991. And or oh, 92, actually. And since you got out of prison, just to be clear, since you got out of prison and you've embarked on your artistic career, mm. you've not been involved in any more crime. No, no. Would you say that prison reformed you? You reformed yourself? You just went on this trajectory to be different? Well, I think I'd re you reform yourself as you get older, you realise. But uh, it was a little thing as well. When I first got out, obviously straight onto probation, went into a hostel first for about eight weeks, and then the, the police have to come and visit you. So they came, these two young coppers, two detectives, and they said, said oh, how, how's, how's it going? I said, uh, we reckon that we're not going to have any trouble with you now because of your age. You know what I mean? Straight away, more or less saying, you know, you're too old for this, mate. You leave it alone. And that was the last contact I had with, with police, and up to right now. That's, that, that, that's really good to hear. And I suppose yeah. before I answer the question, what's the moral of your story, what, what what strikes me is despite all of the, the cocaine and cannabis that you were involved in in terms of the trafficking, mm. you said it a moment ago, when you got out of prison, you ended up in a hostel. You didn't end up in a mansion. You didn't end up with millions and millions no. of pounds tucked up in a bank account that you could go and live a life of Riley like you see at the end of movies where they go on their yachts and off into the distance right. with lots of trimmings. It doesn't work like that, does it? So no. what is the moral of your story, Steve? Well, I, I came out of prison with about 30 paintings in a trolley. All my family was there and everything. But that was my start. Those paintings were sold to, uh, quite all over the country, really. And they're, they're in some pretty decent uh, boardrooms. Timpson's on one of them. Vivian Westwood has got two of my paintings. Uh, a few other people as well who don't really want to be mentioned, but they, they've got my paintings in there. So I had something to come out to where most people have absolutely nothing, whatever they get, 47 quid at the time or something. That, that was it. So what are they going to do if they've not got a, a family around them or the opportunity to, to do something? So if you're not teaching people anything in prison other than to be, come back to prison, that's all that they've got to do. People are in there for long enough. They could teach them trades. They could teach them anything, but they don't want to. Like Full Sutton, Whitemore. 4,000 summer prisoners, less than 100 in education. Uh, full Sutton, 5,000 plus prisoners, less than 100 in education. Mm. There's no intention of, of these big mega companies who own these prisons or the products that they sell to rehabilitate anybody. Would you say that you're coming out of prison with that artwork was your second chance? Yeah, yeah. 100%. I had a second chance with, with that. Because you, you had to, I mean, I'm not talking, that wasn't the, I had about 80 paintings. I was sending them out all the way through my sentence with, with again, that plan that, you know, I'd, I'd lost millions. Uh, I was painting my pictures. I was getting more pleasure out of painting pictures and counting millions of pounds, you know, and, and I knew I had something to come out to. And, and luckily it, it, it helped, you know, I sold them for reasonable money. And it also gave me the, the position where people could recognise that you was trying and they'd help you. Like a, a couple of patrons I, I've still got, you know, there's, there's no reason for them to give me whatever they gave me for the paintings. Could have gone down the street and got the same one for a £1,000 instead of paying 5 or 10 or 12 or whatever they paid. You know, people, if you're if constantly trying, 
which, I, you know, n nobody can say I haven't. Every time I just keep trying and trying and keep going and keep going. And then eventually you get into a position where you can help people to do the same. And that's what we're trying to do at the moment. You know, we're trying, like I say, we were talking about the the microgreens and things like that. You know, we can teach some young uh, cannabis growers that don't do that. Just go and do this. You go into your, your little room that you've got or whatever it is and start growing microgreens, you'll earn legitimate money that you can put into a bank, you know. And we're, transferable we're, skills. Transferable, yeah. It's really interesting. Steve, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for asking me. Nice to meet you. Yeah, and nice just, just you. finally, yeah. everybody deserves a second chance, right? Yeah, everybody. And you've taken yours. I've taken my second chance, and I'll, I'll never look back on it. You know, the, the, the difference between looking behind your back every time that you go out or while you're sleeping and you wait for a knock on the door, it's phenomenal, you know, that you can... I, I do a lot of walking. I go on the canals and I, I sit down and I paint for hours in the, in the outdoors and things like that. We're not, knowing that there's nobody sneaking up behind me. No Where police. can people see your paintings if they want? Have you got a website? Oh, I've got my website, stephenmeart.com. Stephen Me Art, and that's me with double E. M double E, yeah. Go yeah. look at your website. Steve, thanks very much for your yeah. time. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comment section. This episode is also available on the streaming channel Crime and Investigation Play. Use the exclusive code Second Chance to get a 50% discount on a subscription to Crime and Investigation Play. This way you can stream this special episode of Second Chance, my series British Injustice and thousands of hours of other true crime content. To take advantage of this offer, go to crimeandinvestigationplay.co.uk and enter the code Second Chance when prompted. For more information, click on the link in the description. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. JRO Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble managed and created our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... 
don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.